Hi, this is Rosie Tillis, Hannah Langdell, and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. In this episode, we'll be discussing hand infections and upper extremity infections. Our guest host is Dr. Linda Sandalis, Associate Professor of Surgery with the Department of Hand Surgery and Plastic Surgery at Duke University. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sandalis. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So generally, when you're seeing hand injuries, it is important to make sure that the tetanus is updated and you want to make sure that you're going to be cleaning it out regularly. So hand soaks are initiated following any surgical drainage. And you also want to consider patient's medical history when we're deciding how often and what to wash them out with. So immunocompromised patients, diabetics, or people who use steroids or IV drugs can have common types of infections. And oftentimes these are polymicrobial or gram negative infections, including farm contaminants. If you live in a rural area, the most common organism is staph aureus and beta hemolytic strep. And you'll often see lymphangetic streaking with beta hemolytic strep. Common principles of antibiotics. IV antibiotics are recommended for flexor tenosynovitis, septic arthritis, and osteomyelitis. And specifically, Bactrim or Clinda and Cipro are the first line choices for staph infections, followed by stepping down to first generation cephalosporins or amoxicillins if it is methicillin sensitive. Another very important point is that if you ever drain these in the emergency room or in the operating room, you want to take cultures so that you know you're treating the right infection. Hannah, would you like to take us through a few of the generic soft tissue infections? Sure. Now, these are important and very common consults that we see, you know, when we're seeing patients in the ED. So cellulitis is a soft tissue bacterial infection that's marked by ruber, calor, dolor, and tumor. And this is usually caused by gram-positive cocci. And as we talked about, beta-hemodeheme strep is common, along with staph. The treatment includes soaks and an IND if necessary, as well as antibiotics and elevation. Oftentimes we start these patients on Keflex and these are appropriate for oral antibiotics unless we have a suspicion for MRSA. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, that's a great point about elevation with or without splinting. It is important to do range of motion. And, and just to remind everyone that um, the warm soaks if there's an open wound. It's important because as you know, the range of motion also helps decreasing the swelling. Thank you. And then do you have any tips, Dr. Sandalis, if this does progress to an, an abscess of how to best drain this in the ED? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. So if, um, and I think you're gonna touch base on the subcutaneous abscess, but if the cellulitis uh, comes and you start treating it early enough, uh, one of the, uh, the, the goals is to avoid the abscess, you know, the formation of the abscess. Um, it will also depend on how long after the injury or the onslaught happens, because as you know, in the first few days, you will have the cellulitis, but you will not have physiologically enough time to actually have form an abscess per se. So kind of as a good lead in, so if the cellulitis does progress and forms a subcutaneous abscess, this can often present after a puncture wound or if there's a foreign body. And we use the same diagnostic criteria, cellulitis, but this will also have fluctuance. 
The treatment involves irrigation and debridement of the abscess and antibiotic administration. And again, important to remember to obtain cultures. We often pack the wound in order to keep it open and allow it to drain and initiate either twice a day or three times a day soaks and packing changes. And this often heals by secondary intention. So do you want to talk really quickly to Dr. Sandalis about the best technique for performing a debridement in the emergency department? So I think an important component, of course, the first step would be the, um, the local or the regional block to, you know, to, uh, to help the patient. And so if it is in the hand, uh, you know, I usually go proximal knowing, you know, either if it's dorsally just blocking the, you know, the dorsal branch of the radial nerve or the dorsal branch of the older nerve. And then depending on where is it localized in the hand, either, you know, you will really try to find where's the most point of turn is and where you actually palpate like a fluid collection, right? Because that's where probably your main pocket will be. Depending on where it's localized, then you will do either a transfer incision, a longitudinal incision, a curve incision, you know, uh, taking into consideration if it is or not, you know, over a crease, uh, you know, flexion or extension crease. Um, so that those would be sort of general, general points that I usually pay attention to. Then uh, another good point to have in mind is always be generous with your um, incisions. Uh, and then of course, uh, of course the packing, which, which will also be important to keep it open. Okay. And then also something you taught me, Dr. Sandalis, is making sure that you spread within the wound just to break up those loculations. So even if your incision is big enough, sometimes you're not able, you know, if you're not spreading widely, then you will miss a pocket there. And so that's another tip. So the next, I guess, level up would be osteomyelitis. So this can occur from an open fracture, and this could lead to soft tissue infections and bacterial emboli. This occurs more commonly in patients with peripheral vascular disease, patients who are immunocompromised, diabetics, or patients uh, with IV drug use. The diagnostic criteria, often we see persistent or recurring edema, erythema, pain, and sometimes purulent drainage. We, in terms of lab values, get ESR and CRP. We can often see a leukocytosis. And of note, CRP is more reliable than ESR for following treatment. Radiographic changes include osteopenia or periosteal reaction, and these appear two to three weeks after the development of symptoms. So it's not something you will see right away. And I think yes. just for test purposes, sometimes, and this is not just with like upper extremity infections, but with like sacral decubitus ulcers or any kind of pressure sores, bone biopsy is always the gold standard for diagnosis of osteomyelitis. That has been tested. So just in mind for the test, it's a bone biopsy. So as Dr. Sinalis was saying, antibiotics are often tailored to culture results, and these are continued for six weeks after surgical debridement. If an implant is in place, then fixation is maintained as long as the construct is stable, and the, con the implant is removed once the fracture is healed. Um, reconstruction includes bone grafting with cancellous bone for defects less than 1.5 centimeters and corticocancellous bone for larger defects. 
You can use an antibiotic spacer for stage reconstruction. The Mascalay technique can be used with subsequent grafting in four to six weeks. Rachel, do you want to go over septic arthritis? First, it is a bacterial infection of a joint. It can uh, result in permanent cartilage destruction if untreated. And that mechanism is by bacterial toxins and enzymes produced by the bacteria. So it can occur by direct trauma or hematogenous spread. The wrist is what we most commonly get consulted on and the PIP joint second. These patients will typically present with increased pain along joint motion, and you need to make sure that you have a good differential diagnosis for this because this is not just isolated to septic arthritis. You will a lot of times see edema, swelling, joint tenderness, and extreme pain with axial loading and um, both passive and active range of motion. Depending on your attendings' preferences, sometimes you will get a joint aspiration. In cases where you have a lower clinical suspicion, which Dr. Sindalis will talk about, you probably want to avoid seeding the joint. But in high suspicion cases, you will get a joint aspiration. And if it is bacterial in nature, it's usually cloudy. And the diagnostic criteria for septic arthritis is a cell count containing greater than 50,000 white blood cells with increased neutrophils, 75% or greater decreased glucose, 40 less than your resting blood glucose. And then you can see bacteria on the gram stain. Um, you also want to, when you send this out, you want to rule out for crystals because this can be the great mimicker of septic arthritis. Um, as far as radiographs, you can sometimes see a foreign body or associated bony injury, um, but early stages will sometimes see joint widening. Um, late stages will see joint destruction. Dr. Sindalis, can you talk a little bit about joint aspiration in general, when it's indicated, when you like to avoid it in technique? So as you pointed out, you know, one of the differential diagnoses would be a gout. You know, my practice, I don't usually aspirate a joint, but that's just my personal approach. I, I rely uh, importantly on the clinical and the history. And the reason why I don't do it, or I hardly do it, I can remember just a few times I've done it in my career, is because of what you said, which is the sitting. And if, if it is a high suspicion, then, you know, the approach of, of having the patient go to the operating room to avoid uh, a missing aseptic arthritis is probably better than, than missing one. I will say, and this, this can be a good tip for whether you're doing radiocarpal corticosteroid injections or getting access for a scope, but if your attending preference is for an aspiration, um, the way, the easiest way that I found to do this is to go into the radiocarpal joint, which is a centimeter distal to listers, and you can palpate that soft spot on your own wrist. Sometimes in patients that are extremely edematous, it's really, really hard to find that soft spot. So you're really, depending on your anatomical landmarks, what you know. Um, but you will use a long enough needle to penetrate the wrist capsule and you want to um, kind of position that needle with a little bit of volar tilt, just like your distal radius. So a little bit like 10 degrees negative. Um, so you want to raise your hand. Like Dr. Sindal said, treatment is surgical decompression. And once you see one, you don't forget it, you'll do an IND. That's typically with a dorsal incision. As far as bugs, because this is important to talk about, in general, staph is most common for anything that we see, followed by the beta hemolytic strip. 
an outlier is the Haemophilus influenzae, which we get tested on. That's a common bacterial infection in children. And then sometimes in sexually active young adults, atraumatic septic arthritis can include Neisseria gonorrhea. That's more common in women and can include low-grade fever chills and migratory polyarthralgia. That's your buzzword. After you drain, if you're doing a second look, even if it has a wound or a drain, you do want to use soaks or whirlpools. Antibiotics, you'll get infectious disease on board, but you need to know what you're covering. So, you know, if it's gram negatives, you want to add genomycin. If you think it's farm contamination, you want a penicillin. If it's staph, you need to include those with staph coverage. And then Neisseria is the only one treated non-surgically with ceftriaxone, followed by seven to 10 days of oral antibiotics. So Rosie, I'll give it over to you to kind of go over the more serious infections and then some of the infections that we see in the emergency room. So neck rash is a a severe life-threatening and limb-threatening infection of soft tissues. Oftentimes it stems from a laceration or trauma, and we often see it in patients who have multiple comorbidities, including severe peripheral vascular disease, diabetes, or immunosuppression, um, also with IV drug users and chronic liver or kidney disease. The mortality of necrotizing fasciitis is up to 76%, and that is due to a delay in diagnosis or treatment. And there's about a 20% amputation rate. There are a couple of different types of neck fasci. So type one is polymicrobial, and it's the most common. Um, type two is due to beta hemolytic strep and staph. It is diagnosed, usually clinically, by a rapidly progressive infection, poorly demarcated erythema, shiny skin, and then gray dishwater fluid, which comes out of the wound. You'll also have patches of bullet and discoloration after a few days. And uh, it, it spreads very rapidly, dissecting along the fascial planes, as evidenced by its name. And it, it liquefies the fat around it. Some of the signs include a, an increased white blood cell count and uh, progression to DIC and shock. Um, radiographs may reveal gas in tissues. And then treatment. So obviously, we want to err on the side of caution. So prompt recognition and early administration of antibiotics um, is essential in dealing with neck bash, and then radical surgical debridement is always the answer. So you want to debride all necrotic and fibrinous tissue, any liquefied fat and foul-smelling fluid, leave it open, and plan on returning to the OR, which is something that we had touched on earlier, is kind of when when do you plan on returning in normal infections, but with neck bash, you want to plan on returning within 24 to 48 hours. And then you also need broad-spectrum coverage of gram positives and negatives and anaerobes. So next we can talk about gas gangrene now that we move on from neck fash. Gas gangrene is usually caused by the clostridial species um, and it is a large scale myonecrosis. It begins with an open wound with necrosis, like a dirty farm, farm wound. The skin around it becomes edematous and bronze with hemorrhagic bullet. And uh, a gram stain of the drainage can show you some gram positive rods. And um, you may feel some crepitance on palpation like because of the subcutaneous gas. Eventually, it'll lead to septic shock. Um, similar to neck fascia, you may see ga- gas on the radiographs, and this is also treated with debridement um, and leaving the wounds open to drain and broad-spectrum antibiotics, making sure to cover the clostridial species. Next up, we run into some fingertip infections. So we'll start by talking about paronychia, which is an infection of the eponychial fold. Um, it generally begins by disruption of the barrier between the nail and the underlying soft tissues. So often after manicures or nail biting, and the infection begins dorsal to the nail and may spread superficially around the nail. The most common organism is polymicrobial, oftentimes staph. 
and the treatment is drainage and soaks and antibiotics. You can use some local anesthetic in the emergency room and separate the epinicule fold from the nail. You may have to remove a portion of the nail if there's a subungual abscess, and that can also aid in your ability to provide soaks and dressing changes. Chronic perinicchia may be treated by marsupialization. So that's excising the skin proximal to the nail fold of, and then allowing the wound to heal secondarily. Oftentimes the nail plate can appear abnormal in chronic perinicchia and it can, it can be thickened or have grooving. And then um, this can be secondary to frequent water immersion. And this can be polymicrobial or Canada as well. Um, the next thing that I wanted to talk about, and I definitely wanted to get Dr. Sindalis's uh, advice on is a felon. And that is an abscess of the fingertip. And we talk a lot about how there are a lot of um, septations in the fingertip, which can inhibit your ability to adequately debride. So the fingertip in a felon composed of series of fascial septae running from the distal phalanx to the skin. And oftentimes some staph aureus can get in there. That's the most common bug. And um, it can cause a large abscess that is very difficult to get rid of because it'll stick around in some of those smaller little pouches. Early cases can be treated with soaks and antibiotics, but if there's a large abscess, you need to drain it and spread around within the fingertip. Um, usually this is done by a mid-axial incision on the radial side of the small finger and thumb or on the ulnar side of the index long and ring fingers. You want to use a Kelly clamp or some sort of mosquito to spread around and disrupt the septae and then pack it. So Dr. Sandalis, do you want to talk a little bit about the best ways to open up all those septae? Yeah, sure. So mid-axial and I think the key to these is what you said is really transect the septa in that pulp, in the distal phalanx. Because if you leave a pocket there in between septa, that is going to be, you know, it's not going to resolve. It's, it's really a, a, an important step because what you wanna do is only transect the septa, but do not disrupt the vascular supply, right? Because you don't want to devascularize that pulp. All right, we can talk a little bit about flexor tenosynovitis. So flexor tino is, is prelens within the flexor sheath, and we want to treat it urgently and efficiently because it, if not treated, it can result in tendon necrosis and rupture. The most common bug is staph, and that's after some penetrating trauma to the finger. <laughs> Diagnosis is based on Knavel's four signs. So fusiform swelling of the digit, uh, resting in the flexed posture, pain to palpation along the flexor sheath, pain with passive extension as well. All right. So um, the most common sign is pain with passive extension and fusiform swelling of the digit. And the most sensitive sign is pain along the flexor sheath. So in order to think about drainage of these flexor tinos, we need to remember the potential spaces. So you want to think about the small finger sheath, which turns into the ulnar bursa. And we have to worry about it spreading through Perona space, which can spread around to the thumb, to the radial side of the hand and the radial bursa. And this can create what's called a horseshoe abscess. Treatment is, again, surgical decompression. So uh, an incision and drainage, irrigation debridement. You want to make at least two incisions if you're going to do kind of a flow through washout. So you can make an oblique incision at the level of the distal palmar crease and then a longitudinal midaxial incision at the level of the distal joint. And then you 
copiously irrigate the sheath from proximal to distal. Um, you can actually leave, if I'm correct, you can actually leave an angiocath in there and irrigate continuously even after the OR. And then if this is inadequate, you can elongate the midaxial incision and incise the sheath between the A2 and A4 pulleys. And then again, postoperative irrigation and soaks can be used. Poor outcomes of this can include reduced total active motion. So the impact of perioperative occupational therapy is incredibly important in these patients as well. Next, we will talk about collar button abscesses. So that's a web space abscess. And that presents with abducted digits and pain, erythema and edema in those web spaces. It forms usually from a distal palmar callus or blister or fissure and spreads into the proximal part of the finger. Usually to drain these because of the space that it's in, you need both a dorsal and a volar incision. You wanna avoid transverse incisions and avoid incisions into the actual web space because of the incidence of contractures. But it's something that often requires the same level of, of spreading and exploration and irrigation as most of our other hand infections. And when we are tested on this, the pictures will show a hand and it's usually the dorsal hand, but it could be volar. And it, it almost, the, the fingers are spread apart because of the swelling. And so the, the abscess gets into that web space. All right. So some of the more atypical bacterial infections were often tested on the presentations of these. The most common bacteria is Mycobacterium marinum, and it, it presents with pain, edema, and sometimes clinical evidence of tenosynovitis. It has a little bit more of a slow progression. So in order to actually diagnose this, you need tissue biopsy and it requires a special stain. And then the histology will show you non-caseating granulomas, actually. It takes six weeks to two years of antibiotics. So a long-term course of antibiotics and definitely an ID um, consult there, usually clarithromycin. Yeah. And Rosie, something we're tested on is the mediums in which they're cultured and the stain. So the stain is the Zeal Nielsen stain. Um, that's been on our in-service. And then if you're growing it in like a broth or a medium, it's the Lowenstein Jensen medium. And so those are the two buzzwords for uh, mycobacterium. Dr. Sindalis, I'm sorry to kind of hop back, but I did want to get your thoughts on operative technique for flexor tino drainage. What, what's yeah, your so I, I usually do the transverse incision, you know, at the distal palm, like at the level just proximal from the A2 pulley, and then uh, at the DIP. You have to make sure that when you irrigate that flexor sheet, then the fluid that goes in, the, irrigate, the irrigation that goes in needs to come out in the distal part of the finger, right, from the distal incision. Otherwise, you could start accumulating the fluid in the finger and then cause, you know, compartment as well, which you don't want. Okay. So um, next we'll talk about toxic shock syndrome, which actually is a toxemia rather than a septicemia. It's associated with staph aureus um, and it's actually the toxin that the bacteria emits. It's TSST1. Um, the treatment is debridement and then remove any implants or foreign bodies that could be in there holding on to the staff and treatment with clindamycin because the clindamycin actually inhibits the staph toxin. I guess, Hannah, do you want to talk a little bit about viral infections? Sure. So herpetic whitlow is caused by herpes simplex one and two. 
This is often seen on the fingertips of children or of dental health personnel. The index and thumb are the most common locations and we can see lesions without pus that coalesce into bullae and then unroof and can ulcerate. Symptoms include fever, malaise, lymphadenopathy, which is seen two to 14 days after exposure and is normally a self-limited course. This uh, herpetic whitlow can be contagious until the lesions have healed and diagnosis is based on physical exam, culture, and analysis with a zinc smear and this frequently looks like a paronychia or a felon. Importantly, we do not debris these infections because it can cause a secondary infection. Uh, the most common, this is the most common hand lesion seen in patients with HIV and can be treated with antivirals such as acyclovir or valcyclovir. Next, we'll talk about fungal infections. So these can involve the skin or nails. For the nails, oncomycosis, which is relatively common infection of the nail caused by dermatophytes, such as trifophyton rubrum or candida albicans. Those with wet or moist hands are susceptible, and you'll see thickening of the perinicia, cracking, discoloration, and nail disintegration. A potassium hydroxide preparation of the nail scrapings is used for diagnosis. And treatment includes topical or oral antifungals because of a high recurrence rate. And if these are refractory, then you'll need to remove the nail and use oral antifungals. We alluded to this earlier, but one subcutaneous infection is sporotrichosis, which is caused by sporotrix. And this is found in people who work with plants or roses. The clinical scenario is always someone working out in their garden. And this introduces the organism into the subcutaneous tissue, which can cause papulonodular lesions that ulcerate. And the, uh, another key word is that the infection spreads through the lymphatic system and can go to the regional lymph nodes, which may, which may swell or ulcerate. The diagnosis is made by fungal culture and treatment consists of saturated solution of potassium iodide uh, and also itraconazole can be used. It has been known to spread to bone and joints. And finally, there's other deep or systemic infections, including um, blastomycosis, histoplasmosis, and then one of the common ones that I remember hearing about is mucormycosis and diabetics. Dr. Sandalis, do you mind talking to a little bit uh, to us about the treatment of mucormycosis? I want to make a point before I forget, which is when you have chronic paronychias and despite the drainage and despite the soaks, then think about fungal. Now, in immunosuppressed patients, right, you, your suspicion is more for the uh, systemic, you know, fungal, right? Which we have seen, and that's probably why you're mentioning as well. Uh, admit the patient until turnaround. And um, yeah, that's a great point. And something that I probably wouldn't have thought of, something's not healing. So thank you, Dr. Sandalis. Uh, we'll briefly review different bites. This is probably one of the most common consults that I've had recently in the ED is a patient comes in, 
after a, a dog or a cat bite. Uh, interestingly, cats have higher rates, are associated with higher rates of infection. And the organism to remember is Pasteurella multicoda, and as well as anaerobe, staph, and strep. Treatment is normally with Augmentin or Unison. Um, important to ask the, the emergency department to administer rabies. Uh, remember that cat scratch carries the risk of Bartonella, which you can see lymphadenopathy, malaise, recurring fevers. So you need to test the titers and then treat with azithromycin, Cipro, and doxycycline. Uh, next very common bite is a fight bite, and these often present with pain and swelling. They can be intraarticular, and we should have a very low threshold to take these to the operating room. Dr. Sinalis, if you have a patient that comes in with a fight bite, kind of what are your criteria for waiting versus taking this patient right away to the OR? That's a really good question. I think probably here, as, as we're talking like visiting, you know, one thing is the board answered, and another thing sometimes is how we practice. Your board answer is you take it for an IND. Thank you. We'll touch on just a few other bites. So spider bites uh, can include a recluse spider or a widow spider, which you may need antivenom. And then Lyme disease is the most common tick-borne disease. It is caused by Borrelia and causes, uh, early on, you'll see skin lesions and erythema migraines. And as we know, this can progress to neurologic or cardiologic symptoms later. This is diagnosed by the Western blot and the initial treatment is doxy. And then finally, just to be aware of as plastic surgeons, when we use leeches, um, we often need prophylaxis. And this is often with Bactrim, Cipro, or a third generation cephalosporin. Rachel, do you want to take us through some of the potential spaces in the hand for infections? Sure. Just real fast for the leeches, we get tested. It's Aramonas hydrophilia, and you do need to treat prophylactically. So the spaces that we'll talk about are the mid-palmar space, the thenar space, the hypothenar space, peronia space, which has already been alluded to with the flexor tino, um, and the dorsal subaponeurotic space. So Starting with the mid-palmar space, this was actually on my in-service the first year I took it. They wanted to know um, the borders of it, which was a, a hard thing too. But it, but this can this mid-palmar space can be affected um, when you have flexor tenosynovitis of the long ring or small finger. It is bordered by the volar palmar interossei and the FDP tendons between the second and third interossei, and that was tested. Um, for this, you will drain with a straight transverse incision. Um, the thenar space, you'll typically see these patients have abduction, just almost like a collar button abscess of the thumb. And then obviously the range of motion will increase pain. And this is between the adductor pollicis, the index flexor tendon, so radial to the third metacarpal. This is the most common deep space infection, and you can drain this with a dorsal or volar combined incision. The hypothenar space is mirrored to the thenar space and is ulnar to your mid-palmar space. So it's composed of your hypothenar muscles surrounded by their fascia. 
And then the one that we get tested on the most and was that we actually were tested on for borders of this as well is Peronia space. And uh, Rosie alluded to this when she was talking about you can enter Peronia space from the thumb or the small finger, but it is, that is how you get in horseshoe abscess. And it is bounded by PQ or the pronator quadratus, the digital flexors and FPL, which are going to be superficial in the vertical band of fascia radial to the FCU and ulnar neurovascular bundles. So what we uh, were tested on is what is one of the borders and it was actually pronator quadratus. And this can become infected from either the radial or the ulnar bursa. So you just, um, you can think of it that way. It presents as a tender erythematous fullness palpable at the volar wrist crease. And you can see medium nerve symptoms with this. Cause if you imagine if the patient's transverse carpal ligament is intact, it's just increasing that volume and increasing that pressure. And so you can do an extended carpal tunnel release for drainage of that. And finally, we'll talk about the dorsal subapneurotic space. We get consulted frequently for this, for our dorsal hand infections, but it's just contained by the extensor tendons and fascia dorsally and the interosseous muscles and metacarpals palmarly. And this is what is most amenable to an ED drainage. So you can just drain by a straight line incision over your second and fourth metacarpals. And like Dr. Sindal says, stressed, you want to make sure your incision is large enough. Um, but this, this overall, the other ones lends itself to emergency room drainage. Rosie, I'll hand it over for sure. you just for the final mimickers of hand infections. We'll talk first about gout and pseudogout. These are crystalline arthropathies. Um, they have a clinical presentation similar to that of septic arthritis. So we'll often get called for a septic joint and we have to rule this out although septic arthritis is not impossible in people who also have gout. So the joints are often painful, edematous, swollen, and tender. You can get an arthrocentesis if you're able, if there's no overlying cellulitis. You can also get x-rays. The most common joint affected um, is the metatarsal joints of the great toe. And then you can have chondrocalcinosis on the x-rays, particularly at the TFCC, you'll be able to see that. And therapy for this includes getting a splint to provide some comfort, anti-inflammatories, colchicine, um, and NSAIDs in the um, short term, and then maybe allopurinol in the long term, but we'll leave that uh, best with our medicine friends. Rosie or Hannah, do you remember what it, which one is negatively bifringent oh and which one is weakly <laughs> positive? I think I'm having PTSD. I just remember <laughs> yellow and blue. I There's know, like a yellow right. one, a blue one. And it's negative is the real gout, right? Yes. Yes. So negative, negatively bifringent or bifringent is uric acid crystals. So that's going to be your gout. And the CPPD is the weekly positively bifringent. So those are the two crystal arthropathies, but we are tested on that sometimes. So, And the next thing we'll talk about is pyogenic granulomas. So these are red friable masses that penetrate through the skin and they'll often bleed and uh, they can be pretty dramatic in their appearance. And it can be in response to a wound or some sort of small insult to the tissue. For these, you can cauterize them with silver nitrate. Uh, the cure is excision. And the next thing that we often see or that we're often the ones to diagnose is pyoderma gangrenosum. This is actually um, a systemic disease associated with other systemic diseases like you see in Crohn's. And it'll often present as initially a small painful ulcer and it enlarges and undergoes central necrosis. And the more that you try to debride it, the worse that it gets. 
And so we'll often call for these large wounds that people just can't fix. Um, and so you want to get a biopsy and send it off to dermatology as well. Um, and then usually the treatment is steroids or treatment of the underlying cause. And then some of the um, different neoplasms. So any longstanding lesions, uh, you'll want to get a biopsy and send that off. Uh, specifically, one thing that you may get tested on is a margillans ulcer, which is at the edge of a, a chronic wound and is actually a type of squamous cell cancer, I believe. Um, the last thing that we'll talk about is acute uh, calcific tendonitis. So this has erythema pain and then occasional fevers, and the pain is often localized over a specific tendon or ligament that contains calcium deposits. You can get x-rays, which will show the calcium deposits, and it's very common that it is actually on the pisiform bone. This will resolve without treatment, but it uh, can be diagnosed and at least uh, told to the patient and team to reassure them. So that concludes our extensive hand infections and upper extremity soft tissue infections lecture. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Sandalis. That was a beast of a topic to cover. So. Yes, it really was. Thank you for joining us. That was good. Thank you. No. <laughs> We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of our topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.